This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello and welcome back. I'm your host, Avery Kreiwold. This is Innovating a Bright Future, and this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technologies driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. I hope you're coming off the geothermal episode with a little bit of a break. That was a technical one, and we will see just how far down the rabbit hole we will go in this one. This episode is all about hydropower. Similar to the last episode, we're going to be exploring these technologies through the lens of the Icelandic energy transition, but ultimately we're looking at technology development here, so it's going to include a whole lot more people and places outside of Iceland. Hopefully these episodes are a bit of a window into how we got here, as well as a glimpse at how these technologies can be used most effectively going forward, and what might be on the horizon. So what are we waiting for? Let's get some music going, here we go! For a start, you should know that while Iceland relies on geothermal energy for house heating and has done so for a while, hydropower has made up the vast majority of the Icelandic energy mix for a long time. The first regional and national power plants built following the war and culture shift in Iceland were hydropower. Today, 76% of Icelandic electricity comes from hydropower. This technology is absolutely essential to the functioning of society in the country and allowed Iceland to become the energy-independent nation of today. So let's take a step back. Where did all of this begin? And before we step into this, let's take a minute to remember everything we learned in the geothermal episode, namely the electromagnetic generator. Let's again take into account that the electromagnetic generator was invented in the late 1800s and has improved since then. Some developments were big, some were small, the technology changed in that time. This is not an episode on generators, so I'm not going too far into that. I refuse. Anyways, onwards and upwards. Let's start with hydropower way, way back. Water has been a driving force of civilization for literal millennia. With ancient societies like the Greeks and Romans using water wheels to power flour mills and other infrastructure. It has never been a secret to the human race that water, especially moving water, is powerful, and can be used to do a whole lot of work that would be much more difficult for our tiny human bodies. The first generation of legitimate water turbine was invented by Benoit Fourneyron. I think that's how you pronounce it, but probably not. It's a French name, and I'm far from French. Anyways, Fourneyron was a French engineer in 1827. This development largely kickstarted hydropower development and allowed the rest of the following developments to truly transform electricity generation. Forneron essentially invented the process of using reservoir waters to build up pressure behind the turbines. His Forneron reaction turbine was the first utilization of a penstock, where water under pressure at a reservoir flows through enclosed or controlled systems to the turbine. This was largely the inflection point of large-scale hydropower facilities. In the past, water energy was harnessed using steadily flowing water. The advent of technologies that could make use of dams and reservoirs opened the doors for scaling up energy production with hydropower, which of course could be translated into electricity production as soon as that was a viable avenue thanks to other technologies. This is probably a good time to illustrate the difference between two subsets of hydropower technologies, known as impoundment or reservoir systems, and run-by-the-river systems. To introduce you to these concepts, here's Grimier again. I mean, run-by-the-river is just something that you put into the stream of a, of a river without interrupting the, the cycle, the, the flow cycle of the river between like uh, wintertime and summertime. It, it may not be a good resource where you have like a seasonal rain or droughts and so on. This river is going to dry up. So, so you, it's not going to give you 365 days a year, 24-7. On the other hand, in Iceland, thanks to all the uh, lavas that are covering the, the, the surface, uh, they are you know, they're like a sponge. They, they consume all the rain and then there are quite many rivers here running around all year. So... That made the, the early hydro here to be mostly run by the river. 
So, so that is kind of the story, that the resource was uh, so good because of the uh, fresh, like a spring water that was flowing in our rivers. They were relatively easy to uh, tap into for run by the river. So, so reservoirs, I mean, one of the first ones was in Reykjavik, and they would build like a two-meter dam. Yes, in the beginning, everything was run by the river. Lately, on the big projects in this country are now uh, big reservoirs, big dams, that you put in what we call the glacial-fed rivers, and then uh, a lot of the summer, like a flow of water is uh, stored in those big reservoirs and then it flows in the winter time. Again, to make a, a 365 days a year, 24 seven power source. So, so, so that is kind of the story. So hydro is now the biggest source of energy in this country. Like Ramir says, the difference is mostly in how invasive the construction of the power plant is. Reservoir systems require damming a river to build up a reservoir, and then pulling water from that reservoir for power production. While this does provide a more stable energy source than a system that is dependent on water level, the additional pressure caused by the dam lends itself well to better power production overall as well. For the next couple of sections, we're going to be looking at reservoir systems, although the underlying power producing technology overlaps a lot. We'll come back to run of the river stuff closer to the end of the episode. The first thing you should know about water turbines is they are extremely efficient. Much of the energy losses present in a steam turbine come from turbulence, vibration, and heat. Water turbines don't completely eliminate these factors, and disadvantages are always present in mechanical systems, but water turbines today usually have an efficiency between 90 and 99%. Fornayron's turbine had an efficiency of just under 80%. So right there gives you a good idea of where we're at. Is there a plethora of technologies for us to explore in the hydropower space? Absolutely. But the technology ceiling here is much lower. You can only go so far between 80 and 100. So that's where we're starting. How did he do it? Fornayron used a design now called an outward flow reaction turbine. At least the very basic version of it. Breaking that down, a reaction turbine is one where both the kinetic and potential energy of the water is used to make the rotor spin. In other words, the speed of the water and the pressure of the water are both causing rotation of the turbine. It's kind of complicated to explain what exactly that means, but just keep in mind, that's the part that changes drastically between turbine types. Essentially what this means is pressure differences in the water flowing through the turbine are the main driver of rotation. We will contrast it to a different technology later on that will make it more clear. As such, these turbines have to remain completely submerged at all time, or else pressure differences in the water would be disrupted by the presence of air. Within reaction turbines, there are two subsets that branch even more further down the chain you go. First, there are radial flow reaction turbines, which means that water flows perpendicular to the rotating shaft of the turbine. Setting the stage for an example we're going to use in a minute, you can imagine a plate or shallow bowl as the casing of the turbine, with a rotating shaft passing through the center of the plate vertically. If you pour in some water from the side through a straw, and then swirl your finger around in circles, that's an approximation of the flow of a radial flow reaction turbine. The alternative is the axial flow reaction turbine, where water flows parallel to the axis of rotation. This one shouldn't be difficult to visualize. Solid rotating rod oriented vertically, water flowing from the top of the rod down to the bottom, passing through a turbine at some point. We'll get back to that one later. Keep in mind with these classifications that Fourneyron was never like, hey, I'm going to build a radial flow reaction turbine. These are classifications that were created after the inventions, obviously, so we're going to explore these options when they come into play. For a start, Fourneyron's generator was a bit of a mix. Even with the existing categories, it's difficult to place it within either because he used such a diverse mix of physical concepts and technologies in his design. Moving on to the direction of flow in the turbine itself, in an outward flow reaction turbine, the water flows outward. This is going to take a bit of imagination, so let me set the stage. Take a circular plate with high edges, a platter even, same as the one before. That's going to be the shape of our turbine. An outward flow reaction turbine would have water flowing down into the middle of the plate and outwards. The water enters the system from the center, swirls around a bit to generate torque, then there would be an outflow at the bottom or side of the plate. 
just a hole for it to flow out of. Now all you need to do is submerge the system completely in water, add some rotor blades from the center of the plate outwards, and you have an outward flow reaction turbine. Just a really small one. The key to this design is a spiral casing, which is what makes use of the pressure changes in water to generate energy. This change in size causes a change in pressure in the water, and it is why the turbine rotor is forced to spin. Again, this is the biggest difference we will see between this type of turbine and the type we'll get into in a couple of minutes. In practice, Forneron's first water turbine was basically an outward flow water wheel, with water flowing outward to buckets on the perimeter, which spun thanks to the energy of the water. Forneron iterated on this design a couple of times, raising the efficiency by making the turbine more similar to a reaction turbine and tweaking some components. Shortly after this, in 1849, the most impactful development in hydropower technology to this day was invented. I say that because what came next remains the most popular water turbine in the world. James B. Francis changed the construction of the Forneron turbine to create the Francis turbine, which is an inward radial flow reaction turbine as opposed to an outward flow one. The function of this kind of turbine is a little bit easier to visualize, as water enters from one side and the turbine case looks a little bit like a snail shell, spiraling inward to optimize the pressure differences in the water and maximize turbine function. Otherwise, a lot of the technology remained the same. They had the physics of reaction turbines pretty much down pat. By switching the flow direction, Francis raised the efficiency and added in some less essential components to further increase its effectiveness. Otherwise, the reaction turbine remained relatively similar. The forces causing the rotation are still obscure to me, so I don't feel like I can try to teach them, especially using audio only, but it is possible to understand, and much easier to understand visually if you are so inclined. As a result, energy efficiency increased from the already impressive 80% to over 90%. It was as early as 1880 when the first hydropowered turbine was used to generate electricity, making use of one of the first generation dynamos to generate direct current electricity. The system used a simple water turbine, like literally fan blades on a rotating shaft, about as basic as you can get, and connected it to a very basic direct current generator known as a dynamo. The electricity generated by the system was actually used in an arc lighting exhibit for a storefront. Now you might think that sounds crazy, using precious electricity for an exhibit, but it really wasn't a lot of electricity and there weren't the interconnected grids with a million uses for electricity that there is today. At the beginning of the spread of this technology, implementation went quickly. At first it was small scale, with rich inventors and robber barons investing in small hydropower turbines like Francis and Forneron turbines. These were coupled with rapidly advancing generator technology and often used to supply light to factories, mines, and mills to drastically increase the possible working hours of their investments. It should also be noted briefly that the development of AC electricity, or alternating current, made a big difference for the effectiveness of energy systems. With the advent of AC, the biggest advantage became transmission. Direct current transmission entails basically pushing electrons through wires over the distance that you need to transmit energy. This method produces a ton of heat from the resistance of transmission wires. That heat is energy loss, which means the farther energy travels along DC transmission lines, the more energy is lost, and at some point it becomes completely useless to transmit that energy at all. The advent of AC generators and Nikola Tesla's work on AC transmission revolutionized electricity use. Suddenly, electricity could travel just about anywhere with relatively simple infrastructure. AC engines are also known to be significantly more efficient at converting electrical energy into mechanical energy, which was another reason that AC electricity made such a quick come up in the quickly industrializing western world. Shortly after that implementation milestone, and in a time where similar systems were being established all over the industrialized world, the third generation of water turbine emerged in the Pelton turbine in 1883. The Pelton turbine is our first exploration of the second macro category of water turbine. Instead of a reaction turbine, where both the velocity and pressure of the water is used, 
An impulse turbine exclusively harnesses the kinetic energy of moving water's velocity. One part of the reaction turbine that I didn't mention in that section is the nozzle. The nozzle is exactly what it sounds like, just on a power plant scale. It funnels large volumes of water through a small opening to change the pressure and velocity. In reaction turbines, if this function is present at all, it's usually present after the turbine systems in the order of water flow, and it's only used to increase efficiency of the turbine, but it's not necessarily essential. Because impulse turbines utilize water velocity exclusively, the nozzle is a much more important part of the system. That's because the nozzle is the method of accelerating water. Water flows in through the penstock and to the nozzle, where the flowing water is accelerated. That fast-flowing water simply hits the turbine and boom, energy. Pretty much, anyways. Fun fact if you didn't know it, impulse turbines are named as such because the turbine is spun using the impulse of water. Impulse is the change in momentum of an object, or in this case water, which exerts an equal and opposite impulse on the collision object, in this case the turbine. So by that definition, impulse turbines are fairly self-evident. The core principle is that water with high velocity will exert a force on a turbine when they collide. The turbine itself is basically a modified water wheel in the case of Pelton turbines. There is a large circular apparatus connected to a shaft in the middle, which in turn runs to a generator. Around the outside of the turbine, our water are effectively buckets, targets for the water stream to hit. So when the water is sprayed from the nozzle, it hits these buckets, generating torque and rotation, which turns a generator and creates electricity. Unlike reaction turbines, which may have radial or axial flow configurations, impulse turbines are strictly tangential flow, which basically means if you want to spin something, you push on the outside edge of it, and there you go. Another important part of the impulse turbine in general is that unlike reaction turbines, these don't have to be submerged, and it would actually make the function of the turbine much less effective if it were. The only water involved here is the stuff that hits the buckets and flows out the other end, which makes it much less sensitive to pressure changes in water flow. In terms of the physical properties involved, they're pretty simple, and the turbine works most efficiently when the water hits the buckets perpendicular to the direction of rotation. So it was overall fairly simple to maximize this design. When the water hits the buckets, it's redirected and usually flows out the bucket backwards for a maximum efficiency. There's one more kind of impulse turbine that was also invented in this era, around 1903. This one is called an Osberger turbine, but it's also called a crossflow turbine, which is fantastic because, sorry Osberger, but I'm tired of referring to different turbines based only on the name of their inventor. Great job, you made a good thing, but I will now call it a crossflow turbine because it's actually a very intuitive name for once. Crossflow turbine operates according to the same principles as the Pelton, which makes sense because they're both impulse turbines. Water velocity provides torque to the generator. In crossflow turbines, instead of a single circular row of buckets, they have a long cylinder with the axis of rotation through the center. All around the outside of the cylinder are a bunch of tiny little blades, often 15 to 20 of these blades over the length of the cylinder. Instead of one focused, intense stream of water, the nozzle for these turbines flattens the flow into a wide and shallow sheet that runs the length of the cylinder. No consistent pressure needed or anything like that. When in operation, water flows through the nozzle and through the cylinder. When the water hits the cylinder, the blades or buckets are acted on by the flowing water and cause a rotation and therefore energy. Notice that I said through because the water then flows through the inside of the cylinder and hits more blades on the underside before flowing out the bottom, effectively causing a secondary torque due to the same water. It's honestly a really cool design, and I actually recommend looking up some pictures or videos if it interests you at all, because this was probably the most clever design I found for this episode, at least in my opinion. Now all of that sounds good, but there is a bit of a problem here, because clearly if the water is flowing through the cylinder, it can't be going that fast. Yep, that actually pretty much sums it up. The reality is that cross-flow turbines don't require high flow or high head, because it's an impulse turbine with a relatively insignificant water velocity compared to a Pelton. Cross-flow turbines are a wonderful way to maximize energy generation, 
where there aren't any better options, which pretty much means small scale. Throw one of these in an unremarkable river or stream, and you would have a tough time finding a different design that functions better with a similarly simple design. That said, cross flows can't really keep up with peltons or Francis turbines when looking at large scale energy generation. And now, I believe it's probably a good time and an important time to talk about a couple of other factors that are important in turbine design and we haven't really touched on yet. Flow rate and fluid head are the biggest factors when considering whether to employ a reaction or an impulse turbine. Flow is pretty self-explanatory. It's the volume of water passing through the turbine per time interval. I could, and would like to, have a river flowing through my backyard with a flow rate of 1 meter cubed per second. That's the volume of water traveling by every second. That means if I stuck a very large bucket into the river for 3 seconds and pulled it out again, if 100% of the flowing water went into my bucket, I would have 3 cubic meters of water, which is way too much. So that makes sense, then what is head? Because when you think of a hydropower turbine, you probably think of flow first. Fast water equals lots of energy, right? Well, head is just as important. Functionally, fluid head is basically the difference in height between the intake and outflow of the plant which creates greater pressure in the water thanks to all the water behind it weighing it down and pushing it forward. So a plant whose penstock is 100 meters above its outflow would have much less head than a plant with a penstock 1000 meters above the outflow. That's because there's 900 meters worth of more water weighing on the turbine and generating that torque. These two factors can also be conceptualized using energy, and by using that perspective, the relation between the two is much more clear. In terms of energy, flow is the kinetic energy of water, how fast it's moving, and especially how much water is moving. That combination of factors will give you your flow. Head, on the other hand, is the vertical distance that an amount of water has to travel between beginning and end, which can easily be calculated as a potential energy. Because energy can be easily converted from potential into kinetic energy, the relationship between flow and head becomes apparent. If, for example, you had a single river, say pretty medium-sized on flat-ish ground, then that moving water will have a relatively consistent flow, probably pretty high, but almost no head. Functionally, a ton of water is moving, and it could be moving decently fast, but there's not a ton of pressure being exerted by the water on the water in front of it. On the other hand, add in a steep downhill, and suddenly there's a lot more head. The water speeds up on the way down the hill, converting that potential energy of height into kinetic energy of movement. Head is best utilized by water turbines by effectively damming an area with high head so that all of that water that is trying to move downwards is being slowed down by infrastructure, which gives the water at the bottom of the hill more pressure and preserves that potential energy for when it's needed. And if you didn't guess it, this is the difference between reaction and impulse turbine implementation. The impulse turbine counts on that preserved potential energy at the bottom of the hill. That's where the nozzles are, to turn all of that pent-up pressure into a high-velocity stream of water. Reaction turbines are the opposite. They don't need fast water, they need a lot of water, and they create their own pressure differences in the turbine construction, which is why the nozzles are always after the turbine itself, if they're present at all. Overall, reaction turbines are almost universally used when there is high flow and low head, while impulse turbines work best in low flow with high head. Obviously, if there's high head and high flow, life is good, and you can do pretty much anything you want for generation and not go wrong. For some context, most Pelton turbines are capped at an operating flow of 70 cubic meters, where Francis turbines can handle up to 900 cubic meters per second. This brings us to one of the most challenging aspects of turbine development. One of the biggest advantages of the Pelton turbine at its invention was its resilience to conditions. Yes, it requires decent head to function, but if that head is inconsistent or whatever, it's relatively easy to compensate for. Often, impulse turbines keep large water reservoirs in case of sudden drops in pressure so that energy generation is not meaningfully affected. Reaction turbines simply don't have this luxury. Relying on more flow means that having quote-unquote backup water would mean keeping an insane amount of water ready and waiting to be added to the system. 
and if the pressure is significantly impacted for whatever reason, the turbine simply doesn't function, instead of slowing down a bit like a Pelton would. In 1912, Victor Kaplan decided to solve this problem with what would come to be known as the Kaplan turbine, because that just seems to be the naming convention with these things. The theory behind the Kaplan turbine is a return to the trusty old reaction turbine and based his designs on the Francis turbine. It was a highly effective system that could be used almost anywhere if it was designed right, and Kaplan thought he could make it even better. For his turbine, Kaplan wanted to remove the sticking point of consistent flow. He thought that a turbine that could work in varying flow rates would be preferable to one that couldn't. Pretty solid point he's got there, I think. Before we get to that part, this is our first axial flow turbine. If you remember, axial flow turbines are implemented in such a way that the axis of rotation is parallel to water flow. For a visualization, hold a pencil vertically and pour water down straight on top of it. That's axial flow. Don't do this in your living room or your car please, cause then it's just a mess. So instead of water flowing in sideways, swirling around in one direction or another like in a radial flow turbine, the water goes straight through the blades and out the other end. This on its own allowed for the turbine itself to be significantly smaller. While radial flow turbines require a flow system perpendicular to the axis of rotation, which requires a larger infrastructure sprawl, Kaplan turbines can have, a, can have an effectively straight pipe with a turbine mounted in the center and connected to a generator. The fewer number of blades required for the operation of the turbine also reduced energy loss due to resistance compared to Francis turbines and made the Kaplan turbine even more efficient. The infrastructure required is significantly less, even though it still requires the whole penstock and outflow setup. It's also usually accompanied by a dam or reservoir of some kind, but it's much more compact than what the Francis turbines required. If he stopped there, Kaplan would have succeeded in allowing hydropower to be implemented more easily with less infrastructure. However, what he did next would open the floodgates, if you will, for widespread hydropower implementation almost anywhere in the world. To fix the problem of consistent flow, Kaplan added automatically adjustable wicket gates and propeller blades to make the turbine operational as variable as the flow rate. I don't think I've even explained wicket gates in this episode because they're not super important, but mostly because they're not that interesting. Wicket gates basically control how much water gets to the turbine itself. In past designs, these were often fixed in place and never moved, or they had some manual adjustment capabilities for differences between spring and summer flow rates. Now, Kaplan added servo motors to the blades and wicket gates, which made precise adjustments of the components extremely easy. If the river suddenly dropped in flow overnight, a couple of button presses and the turbine can change its configuration. With this configuration change, the turbine doesn't maintain peak energy generation, but it does maintain almost peak efficiency, which means it's still getting all the energy out of the water that it possibly can. This made hydropower much more viable for places with large variability in water flow, which was an extraordinarily important step for the risk reduction in investing of these technologies. I should say that these days, Adjustability like this is pretty much standard in hydropower facilities and energy facilities in general. With better connectivity, data analysis, the digital age, and the internet of things, which we've talked about on the show before, variable generation is even more effective. A lot of these processes that were revolutionary for a human to be able to take part can now be entirely automated to maximize their efficiency even further. Overall, the tenets of the Kaplan turbine remain similar to the Francis or Forneran turbines. It has to remain under constant pressure throughout operation, and it makes use of that pressure to spin, but now it's significantly more compact and versatile. And that's pretty much it for turbine developments. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? The majority of hydropower facilities being built today are based off of technology over a century old. Hydropower was the original renewable energy source, and it was one of the first energy sources period. That's not to say that there hasn't been any developments in the interim, or that there is still the potential for growth in the future. There have been significant developments in the infrastructure that goes into a hydroelectric dam to make it more compact, more efficient, and versatile. There just haven't been any brand new water, 
there just haven't been any brand new water turbine technologies that are worth investing in, because the efficiency is already so high. When it really comes down to it, that may sound a little bit discouraging, but it's pretty damn good when you consider that the standard for new hydroelectric dams is 95% efficiency or more. It's a pretty good place to be at in terms of technological development, and it means that we can allocate resources to researching less optimized technologies like solar and wind, and depend on hydropower dams in the meantime. Well, we've gone this far, I think we should probably take a quick look at what makes these turbines uniquely efficient. Where are these turbines used the best? Let's do a bit of a summary of technologies, along with the pros and cons. That sounds fun, right? First up, we got reaction turbines and impulse turbines. This is the first category split. Reaction turbines are typically a little bit smaller in size than impulse turbines, and they're made to optimize high flow and low head applications. Reaction turbines use mostly the potential energy of water in pressure differences to generate torque and can handle high heat and pressure environments. These styles cost more in maintenance, operating, and manufacturing, but they're usually a little bit more efficient than impulse turbines. On the other hand, impulse turbines work great for low flow and high head applications, and they use kinetic energy of moving water to generate force and torque on a turbine. Reaction turbines are then split into two categories, radial flow and axial flow. Radial flow turbines have water swirling in the same direction as the turbine spins, while axial flow turbines while axial flow ones have water that flows straight through the blades perpendicular to the axis. Radial flow is also split into inward and outward flow, where the Francis turbine is an inward flow and a Fourneyron turbine is an outward flow. Axial flow turbines include the Kaplan turbine, which is a compact and adjustable equivalent to the Francis turbine. Impulse turbines are much more simple and consist of tangential force applied by water to a rotating surface. This category includes Pelton turbines for large-scale applications and cross-flow turbines for smaller ones. So that's what we got at the moment. It's a pretty well-established field, like I said, for obvious reasons. So with that in mind, what is next? Is this just a good option, but there's nowhere for it to really go? Not at all, and that's why this is still important right now. Even though the generation technology has pretty much reached its peak, there is still so much innovation in the hydropower sector. One way that hydropower is transforming lately is hydro storage. Like the general technology, pumped hydro storage is not new, being first used as early as 1890 in Europe and 1930 in North America. The difference is that there was never a whole lot of demand for it before large-scale renewable energy adoption. Pumped hydro is a method of energy storage, and it works by pumping water uphill to a reservoir when there's an excess of electricity on the grid. When there is a lack of energy on the grid, the water in the pumped reservoir can be released downhill and its potential energy due to gravity is used once again to turn a water turbine and generate electricity. This technology, although available, wasn't super helpful when, first of all, all electricity was being generated by fossil fuels, which requires no energy storage, and second of all, there wasn't as much demand for energy because fossil fuels were also used primarily for transportation, space heating, and industry. Now, with the electrification of transportation, building infrastructure, and household appliances, as well as the widespread implementation of renewable energy and intermittent generation, energy storage has become a priority of the energy transition. Pumped hydro storage is one of the most efficient methods of energy storage because the only energy losses come from pumping the water up and running through a turbine at the bottom, both of which are very efficient machines. The only problem with pumped hydro storage is the location, and even that is being developed as we speak. Typically, pumped hydro requires an elevated terrain where a reservoir can be built. New alternatives are now being explored such as underground pump storage, where reservoirs are constructed entirely underground and achieve the same function. This is obviously not perfect, because the construction of such a system would be expensive and time-consuming, but the point is, options are continuously being explored. But by far the most impactful research and implementation taking place now is in the space of low-head hydropower plants. And yes, head is one of the two important factors in hydropower generation, but hear me out. 
One of the biggest concerns with the implementation of hydropower is the environmental damage that comes with damming large bodies of water. Creating reservoirs on land that doesn't usually have a reservoir there destroys the land and disrupts ecosystems. Implementing low-head hydropower removes the need for a dam and consequently removes the only environmental concern of the technology. The first iterations of this adjustment to hydropower were run-of-river mechanics, which could technically date back to water wheels. Run-of-river facilities basically means that the flow of water isn't meaningfully disrupted from what would be its natural course if the facility wasn't there. These typically divert a portion of a river to a small hydropower facility near the river, run that water through a turbine, and the outflow flows back into the river. No harm, no foul. Of course, the power generated by these facilities is much less than would come from a large-scale reservoir, but these scenarios eliminate some hydropower technologies like Pelton turbines, which simply can't operate under such low head. So run-of-river hydropower plants are usually either cross-flow turbines or some form of reaction turbine. Since run-of-the-river facilities have significantly less consistent flow rates, these facilities are less consistent in energy production. And if the river freezes in the winter or dries up in the summer, there's no energy production at all. In less extreme cases, like drought or low water times, Kaplan and cross-flow turbines function well because they're so easily adjustable, which is why similar technologies have been used for the majority of these facilities. And it's not just about rivers either. Canals, conduits, and even streams can be fitted with small hydropower plants. And even though each one may not generate that much energy, because these require so much less capital, land, and time to build, more turbines can be implemented and more energy generated. On one river, for example, where there was probably only one site capable of building a large-scale impoundment facility, several small-scale hydropower plants can be built in sequence along the route of the river, each generating a smaller portion of electricity, but having almost no environmental impact while they do it. This is the biggest advancement in hydropower technology, and it seems to be the direction that this sector is taking. When this technology is implemented properly, hydropower can be by far the most efficient renewable energy source and one of the most efficient energy sources around, having almost no impact on the environment, climate change, or otherwise. Couple this potential with advancements in material science, better system engineering, and integration with the Internet of Things, and you get an insanely promising technology going forward. There is an excess of flowing water in the world in terms of energy generation, similar to solar power. No matter how much energy generation is built, we will never use it up. The potential is there, and all indicators of investment, infrastructure development, and public perception point to hydropower becoming one of the most popular energy sources in the coming decades. So, remember what this season is about? Iceland! And we've barely talked about them at all in this episode, so let's get back to that. Iceland began their foray into hydropower technologies in 1904 in the town of Hafnjör. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I'm trying. The settlement didn't even have municipal status until 1908, four years later. The first iteration of the plant in Hafnjör was nothing special by modern standards, generating only enough electricity to light 15 houses and four street lamps. With that being said, it was at the same time a huge departure from previous electricity sources, which were intermittent, dependent on fossil fuels, and extremely expensive, making electric power a rare commodity for Icelandic people. This all changed with the first power plant, no matter how small. It was a proof of concept that turned out to be a significantly cheaper option than burning coal or oil. From that point onwards, it was a kind of self-perpetuating feedback loop. Each time a hydropower plant was constructed, it reinforced the facilities as a perfect solution to energy scarcity in Iceland. The fact was, before large-scale adoption of renewable energy, any form of energy in Iceland was a rich person's game. And with hydropower being so much cheaper, it only made sense to continue building out new infrastructure. The first plants in Iceland were fairly small facilities at least by modern standards, and many of those smallest plants that were built during the advent of hydropower or since then are similar to run-of-the-river plants. Not every hydropower generator was burgeoned by a dam. The first large-scale power plants were built back-to-back, -back, 
one in Reykjavik in 1921, and one in Acuria in 1922. For all intents and purposes, these two plants were what kickstarted the Icelandic energy economy. With two large carbon and fuel-free power plants in operation, energy prices dropped, and the commodity became more available to those who had never had the opportunity before. But with the establishment of large hydropower plants that were designed to supply large populations with energy, there arose a difficult problem. On such large scales, with turbines running in the fast glacial rivers of Iceland, the sediments present in the water sources were detrimental to the function of the plants. At the same time, without those glacier-fed rivers, Iceland wouldn't have the robust system in place that they do today. Well, it's difficult to say, but it's a pretty safe bet they wouldn't have found so much success so early on. The abundance of glacier rivers made water scarcity almost negligible and gave the country a relatively consistent source of fast-flowing water all year round. Such abundant and consistent hydropower sources are scarcely found anywhere else in the world. The experience with, you know, these glacier-fed rivers, they are special and uh, there is a lot of, of uh, uh, statistics and science about how to, what is the appropriate size of the, of the reservoirs and so on and so forth for keeping them running 24-7. What was special maybe about the hydro is that it is running on these glacier-fed rivers. They are very, very high and uh, suspended like a solids and gravel, you know, traveling on the, on the base of the rivers. So, uh, so they had to solve that, and the solution was the uh, these big, uh, like uh, reservoirs, the big lakes that are accumulating the sediments and uh, making the water more benign for the turbines. The principle was the same, but the adaptation was local to the local situation here. So, while small-scale or run-of-river facilities worked at first, and in fact still function perfectly well today. The implementation of large-scale hydropower plants for urban generation made reservoir use a must. Reservoirs were put into place in hydropower plants for two primary reasons. To regulate river flow, primarily to aid in the efficiency and consistency of power generation, or to control water content and allow sediments to settle before passing through the turbine. While both cases apply to Iceland, reservoirs were largely required due to the sedimentation of water sources. Shortly after these first large plants were built, and alongside the construction of countless small-scale generators around the country, Iceland began to require less and less imported coal for energy generation. By the 1950s, there were hundreds of hydropower facilities in the country, and the phasing out of coal began in earnest. 1965 was a bit of a turning point for Iceland, because it marked the establishment of Landsvirkun, the national power company. Landsvirkun's job was to regulate and organize energy sources around the country to optimize energy generation and distribution, which they obviously did a good job of because more and more electricity plants continued to be built on a larger scale from that point onwards. The establishment of the National Power Company essentially allowed for more investments into better organized projects that could impact a larger number of people. And that's exactly what happened. In the intervening years, Landwirken, alongside a few other national power companies, would invest large sums of money into large-scale power plants that eventually led to Iceland declaring electricity independence and generating all domestic energy within the country. If you remember back to episode 2 with Stefan, these national power companies under state authority were also extremely important in establishing brand new economies in Iceland, as well as maintaining old business sectors. Mass power production is, to put it simply, a commodity that is not available everywhere, especially not for so cheap. Iceland's best resource became its electricity, and with that supply came a demand that transformed the lives and livelihoods of many Icelandic people. Although not nearly the beginning, and definitely not the whole story, one of the ways that hydropower changed Icelandic culture was by introducing the country to the aluminum industry. Aluminum is a fairly light metal that's not the most difficult material to transport, but it requires immense amounts of energy to smelt. This is largely where heavy industrial sectors in Iceland began, with aluminum smelting supported by the excessive cheap energy produced in Iceland. This was of course not all thanks to hydropower, with geothermal energy also playing a significant role in that industry specifically, but it definitely was the advent of renewable energy that brought a brand new industry into the country in a relatively short amount of time. 
As Stefan explained to me in the historical episodes of the show, heavy industry buyers like aluminum smelters were the lifeblood of the nation's economy and energy sector. It represented the coming together of four different facets of society in the ideal combination for mutual good. The government got to control and regulate almost all of the energy production in Iceland, making it a profitable endeavor for them. Offshore investors and clients making use of the cheap energy were handed a resource unlike any other, functionally limitless energy with low cost and almost zero carbon footprint. The power companies and operators are making bank because they're guaranteed to have a consistent source of income thanks to bulk buyers like aluminum plants. And finally, the public are given greater variety of job and career choices thanks to the influx of energy as well as benefiting greatly from cheap electricity prices. In the more recent decades of the 21st century, Iceland has further expanded its industrial sector. As important as aluminum is to Iceland's economy, it began to form an almost dependent relationship to the industry that was limiting expansion into other fields and creating instability in the economy. An economy based on one resource is volatile, and Iceland didn't want to go through that again. So since then, Iceland have expanded their reach into silicon production, largely for solar panel production. Silicon production is also an energy-intensive industry and fits in right alongside aluminum as an economic cornerstone. Databases and virtual storage are an ideal candidate for Icelandic energy because their energy cost is almost entirely in the refrigeration department and Iceland is a naturally cold place to begin with, so it fits perfectly. The point is, the opportunities provided by increased availability of not only cheap and abundant energy, but also clean and sustainable energy, have made Iceland into somewhat of an energy utopia. It's fortunately one of these rare cases where everyone wins, and it's a perfect example of the opportunities that can come about by implementing renewable energy sources, especially in places that don't currently have access to adequate energy sources as it is. That's not to say the system is perfect, as we've already gone over some of the biggest issues with hydroelectric power. It's not free from environmental damage, even though it is emissions-free, and some people simply don't want large industrial structures built in their backyards, or on lands that have been remarkably empty and free for a long time, if not forever. It's partially for that reason that Iceland is implementing more geothermal energy than hydropower these days. It's also why Iceland is now expanding its renewable energy repertoire and considering significant investments in wind power and wind couplings to hydropower facilities. For a quick cameo in our technology episode, please welcome back Stefan for a brief snippet. Yeah, but, but, but you could argue that, that we are the optimal country for that because uh, the thing about uh, windmills, and, and that is the part that the, the people promoting the windmill industry do not tell you that much about is that when the wind is not blowing, you have to have a, 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 another uh, power source, which in, in, in so many cases are power plants uh, run with fossil fuels. But having a substantial power production with windmills in a country which has big hydropower plants, that is a match made in heaven. Some of the the more ambitious ideas are to build those windmill farms next to the big uh, hydropower plant so that you can use the same system of transmission lines so that the the big windmill farms will not include uh, power lines crossing the landscape, which is a very sensitive issue here. And, And Icelanders have always hated power lines in the in the in the landscape you know even in the in the early early days they 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 tried to put as much into the ground as possible overall iceland's advancements in both hydropower and geothermal energy have laid the groundwork for widespread renewables consistent generation coupled with reliable purchasing and steadfast management it's admirable how much infrastructure and development has gone into the icelandic energy sector in the last decades and the country has showcased an ambition unlike any other. Going forward and facing the climate crisis, the rest of the world should look to Iceland for the methods, processes, and benchmarks to hit in order to successfully undergo a global energy transition. There's no question that renewable implementation on the scale of Iceland is what the world needs right now. There is no other option. 
And while that will not be easy, we must draw both inspiration and knowledge from those who have found success. And undoubtedly one of those sources is Iceland. Here we are with the second half of our technology episodes finished. What a ride it's been. Throughout writing these episodes, it's been incredible to discover the power of Iceland's energy sector and the pure opportunity and prosperity that has accompanied the establishment of such ambitious renewable energy goals. Again, Iceland is a pretty unique case. They had strong incentives to transition away from fossil fuels quickly, as well as the public drive, ambition, and investment to make the transition happen. That won't be true everywhere, and I think it's pretty safe to say that energy systems are almost universally more complicated than that to change in the modern day. However, the biggest takeaway from these two episodes has been the measures of success and progress that can be obtained by just a little bit more ambition and a little bit less contention. That's why recognition of climate change and all of its accompanying consequences is so important right now so that we can put the same ambition, investment, and persistence behind the energy transition that Iceland did. We have the technology, and there are plenty of opportunities across the globe, both in developing and developed countries, to put these technologies into place and create prosperity in a socially and environmentally sustainable manner. We are going to continue this conversation in the next episode and discuss where we go from here and how Iceland is leading the global charge to climate action. For now, I want to thank you for being here through this entire episode. I know the last two have been highly technical, so I hope they can be helpful to you in understanding this big complicated system that we call an energy sector. I also once again have to extend my thanks to Green by Iceland and Business by Iceland, as well as Stefan Paulsen, Grimir Bjornsson, and Kama Thordersen, who have made this episode and this season possible. We wouldn't be here except for you, so thank you. As always, if you have questions, don't hesitate to reach out via the social media links. We love to hear from you, and a friendly reminder that the Patreon page for the show is also in the show notes. If you feel like donating, it is appreciated and helps keep the show going. Thank you again for being here and learning with me. I can't wait for the next one. Stay innovative. Mm-hmm.